Ask a European journalist what they think of when they see American TV, and their answer might give you a lesson in international relations. Where is the international news? You know, you turn on a TV news bulletin and, and it's all America, America, America. There's a lot happening in the rest of the world, and, you know, maybe it might be an idea that people knew about it. Coming up in the hour ahead, broadcasters from Belfast and Berlin compare notes on what media offers them where they live and how it fits with what they learn when they travel. People really do want good information and in-depth information, not just like the big headlines. We'll look at a few of your options for visiting the Greek Isles. There are thousands scattered all across the Aegean and Ionian seas, so where do you start? Of course, the two major islands all people want to go are Mykonos and Sandorini, and there is a reason why. I mean, they're beautiful, but there is so much more. Plus a primer on European coffee culture. We'll serve it all up next on Travel with Rick Steves. Does it seem like your cable TV and even your radio dial is getting crowded with more and more stations each year? But apart from this one that you're listening to now, how many of them really give you an accurate view of the world? Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, European media colleagues explain how media operates and what they expect from it in Berlin and Belfast. And we'll have some fun exploring the coffee cultures of Europe as well. First... You only have to say the words, the Greek Isles, and you might have visions of sun-bleached houses, shoulder to shoulder against a fragrant hillside, with a mesmerizing view of a glittering sea. When you consider that there are more than 200 Greek Isles with people living on them, and more than a thousand altogether in the Aegean and Ionian seas, you'll soon realize your Greek Island fantasy requires a little planning to make sure you match up your expectations with what you'll find. Here to help us prepare for adventures in the Greek Isles are two experts who've been introducing travelers to the delights of Greece for years now. Anastasia Gaitanou is based in Thessaloniki. And while David Willett may have an Australian accent, his heart is firmly planted in Greece, where he's long led tours and written guidebooks. David and Anastasia, thanks for being here. Thank Good you. to be here, Rick. Anastasia, when you think of an American going to Greece, of course they're going to go to Athens, and then they want to get a dose of the islands. But always, like Americans, we want to see so many things, but we don't have enough time. How do you sort through all the islands? What are your options? Uh, Where would you recommend? I think that the easiest way is to take a ferry, Mm -hmm. either from the port of Piraeus, which is the main port of Athens, or the port of Rafina, that's um, the port at the east coast, outside of Athens, depending on which island you want to go. Mm -hmm. Of course, uh, the two major islands all people want to go are Mykonos and Sandorini, and there is a reason why. I mean, they're beautiful. But there is so much more to oh, see. Yeah. And most Americans going on a cruise ship, those are the two islands they stop, Mykonos and Santorini. Consequently, those islands are really built up for tourism. David Willett, when you're thinking about the Greek islands as just a primer, what are the, the different groups of the islands? Well, there's a number of island chains, and each are quite separate and have a character of their own. Undoubtedly, the most famous are the Kiklades, the Cyclades, mm-hmm. of which uh, Mykonos and Santorini are the best known. But uh, every island has its own feel, and each island group is uh, is quite different too. An island is not just another island. Everyone An island is not group. just another island. Every island has its own culture, traditions, similar architecture within uh, groups. But uh, otherwise, there's no two islands are the same. So if you, I mean, there's probably hundreds of islands. If you were just going to choose three islands and choose them for their diversity. You wanted three distinct islands from different parts of Greece. What three islands might we consider? I would start with Naxos, which is my favorite of the Kiklades, because it has a bit of everything. If you like beaches, and I don't like beaches, Naxos, I think, has some of the best in the Kiklades. It also has history going way back to Mycenaean times. There's, uh, I think, 1,500 BC to be found there. There's a wonderful Venetian castle. There's traditional Cycladic architecture. It has everything, and it is a real community. It also has excellent food. Naxos cheese is uh, some of the best you'll find in Greece, and Naxos is also famous for its lamb, highly prized at Easter time. Sounds like a vacation in itself right there. What's another island? Another favorite is Rhodes, Mm. or Rhodos. Mm -hmm. And I love Rhodos because of the magnificent 
old wall town built by the Knights of St. John. So this is a crusader city. It's a crusader city, yes, or an offshoot of the crusader. So this is like medieval as can be. If you it's have this it's quintessential idea of a European medieval uh, walled city or something, this might be it. Rhodes fits the bill just perfectly. Beautifully. And it's very close to Turkey, isn't it? It's, you can get to Turkey quite easily from that. You get to either Fethiye or to Marmara. So there's ferry boats going from Rhodes to Turkey. Yes. All right, so there's two islands, Naxos and Rhodes. The other one I would add, well, some people will debate whether it's actually an island or not. Crete. It is an island, but it's big enough to be you know, a, a separate a country. Island, a separate yeah. country. Well, that's of course where the Minoan civilization uh, rose. So it's got fabulous ancient sites, some good beaches, wonderful Venetian mm. castles, fortifications, and a very distinct culture of its own. People still very proud of their traditions in Crete. So yeah, these Cretans. Cretans. Are they yes. Cretans? Is that where uh, this word comes from? Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, well, I think we're confusing Cretin, old French, and, oh, okay. uh, and and someone from Crete who is... Uh, Thank goodness. Yeah, so, so Cretans like that are not populating the island of people Crete. People will say very proudly, I am Cretan, so you mustn't laugh. <laughs> okay, mustn't laugh. I'm sorry. Uh, you are Cretan. Very good. <laughs> hey, uh, in Crete, we've got what I find the, one of the most memorable hikes anywhere in Europe, the Gorge of Samaria. Talk about that. Well, the Samaria Gorge is the most famous. The whole southern coastline or the west southwestern coastline has, has lots of gorges. Mm. Uh, and there's others that uh, I think are much nicer because really the Samaria Gorge these days, it's like queuing up to go through the I imagine Uffizzi it's quite touristy, in, uh, isn't it? Yeah. It's convenient because you ride a bus to the very top and then you spend all day walking downhill to get to this lovely beach. Yes. And from there you can catch a boat around and catch a bus then back to your starting point. But that's the classic sort of obvious one that all the tourists go to, what would be an alternative to the Samaria Gorge that might be nicer? There are others which are just to the east of there. I think it's the Imbros Gorge, which is uh, also very nice, but far less visited. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there is also the, the Gorge of the Dead. Yes. You know, we call it like that. It's not, it's not. Uh, yes, it's at On Crete, the Gorge yeah. of the Dead. Yeah, that's and how the, they call it, of the what, dead What men. would that hike be like then, Anastasia? It's uh, on about two hours mm-hmm. hike. It's a beautiful gorge. Is it they, downhill going down to the... downhill, lake. Yes, So you, you start at the downhill. top, you, you take a, a road to the uh, top of the you thing. You start at the top, And then yes, you hike you down this downhill. gorge all the way to the south coast. Mm-hmm, that's true. And then at the end of the gorge, and very close, is that beautiful site of the ancient palace of Zakros, what's left of it, but it's um, really very interesting. That's a nice reward for your two-hour hike then. It is, and there is a beach also quite near, so you can combine all of it. Our Travel with Rick Steves specialists on all things Greece are David Willett and Anastasia Gaitanu. Now, Anastasia, David just talked about Naxos, Rhodos, and Crete as three distinct mm-hmm. islands. They all sound interesting. What would you add to those islands? If you were going to Naxos, Rhodos, and Crete, how would you be sure to enjoy them? Well, to be honest, I don't think of Crete as an island. It's too big for my taste. <laughs> it's more like a separated mainland. <laughs> okay, so Crete is like a, too big for an island. Okay, uh, It's a bit too big. Uh, I think it's the fifth biggest of the Mediterranean, if I yeah. remember well. I would take Lesbos, definitely. It's Lesbos, an island okay. yes, of the northeastern Aegean Sea. I like that island very much because it's quite big, but you still have the feeling that you're on an island, that you're surrounded by the sea. And the northwest is completely different than the southeast of the island. The northwest is a volcanic landscape. You think that you're on the moon mm-hmm. sometimes. And uh, there are, again, some uh, fortresses and castles dating back to the 16th century in, uh, by the Crusaders. Phoenicians, as well, have been there. And there are some beautiful, long, sandy beaches there. There are mountains. And then the northeast, yeah, northeast and uh-huh. southeast, is completely different. It's very green. Uh, On the it. island of Lesbos, you're yeah, talking about? It's the about. same island, always the same island. And there are bigger and smaller coves there. It's really beautiful and combines everything. The city is quite modern, but there are beautiful old mansions. And the city is named Lesbos also? The city is, uh, no, the city is named Mytilini. Because in a lot of islands, the name of the town is the same as the mm. island, isn't it? Well, in this particular case, many times the name of the city will be used for the island itself because sometimes Lesbos has different connotation. What is the the connection? Because oh, people mm-hmm. think of lesbian and lesbos. Is there a connection there? Yes, there is a connection. Lesbian is actually primarily the uh, uh, inhabitant of Lesbos, but it has to do with Sappho, who was uh, a woman poet who lived in the 7th century BC. 
and we only have fragments of her poets, but in older days, the interpretation was not exactly correct, and people thought that she loved girls more than men. So this poet men. from 2,700 years ago, yeah. from the island of Lesbos, gave us the term for lesbian exactly. because we misinterpret her poetry exactly. to think that she loved women. Yeah. Interesting. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're exploring the Greek seas with David Willett and Anastasia Gaitanu. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Ronald's on the phone in Broadbrook, Connecticut. Ronald, thanks for your call. Yeah, hi, Rick. Thanks for taking my call. Appreciate the work that you do with your books and your shows. We really enjoy them. We actually have been to Athens on a cruise, but uh, we're getting uh, to go actually spend a week on Paros, and we were thinking, gee, that's one of the islands we're going to leave, obviously fly into Athens, probably hit, obviously, Mykonos, Santorini. But we wanted to spend the, a week, we have a chance to spend a week in, a, in a, an apartment on Paros. So we were interested to try to get involved more with the culture, the food, and the history there. How would we best do that? First of all, I guess, is the island exciting? Is there things to do there? And how would we spend a full week on an island? So this is Paros, P-A-R-O-S, and you certainly don't need to spend a full week because Paros, if I remember correctly, is kind of a transportation hub. There's plenty of ferries going in and out of Paros. David, what are some ideas for Paros? The main town is attractive, um, but otherwise, for me, it's an access point to Naxos. Yeah, I know. Uh, I, I, I remember uh, it as a, ch- a place where you change ferries and, yes. and this sort of thing, and I had to, I was stuck there for a night, but... If I had a free trip to Paros, I'd think I'd use it as a springboard to go somewhere else. Where would you go from Paros? Well, over to Naxos. It's uh, right 40 minutes away. 40 minutes to Naxos. David Willett, he wrote the book on Greece. That's his favorite island in all of Greece, I think. But Paros itself, the big attra- one of the big attractions there is windsurfing. But uh, if mm-hmm. you're not into windsurfing... If you have the apartment in Paros and you're staying there anyhow, there are some things that you can do there as well. And what would that be? One day we'll definitely have to rent a car if you don't have uh-huh. one and do um, a round trip around the yeah. island. I would start with the south of the island. I would go to a little port called Aliki. There is a, a small museum there with models of um, lots of sightseeing attractions, etc. There's a real crazy guy uh, who owns it and he'll explain everything and he's really great. And then there is uh, the so-called area of the uh, of the butterflies. Most probably you won't see any butterflies, but it's a nice landscape there. And then I would return and go to um, there where the ancient quarries used to be. That's a place called Marathi, which means fennel. So and lots to do on Paros. There's a lot to on do. On any island, you can get out and explore the far reaches of the island, far away from the main transportation hub. Yeah, and then, you can do And that. you don't need famous sites. You just, you're just you finding quintessential Greece, really. A little humble town with just enough commerce to get you a nice salad and some fresh seafood and mm. play a little backgammon and uh, enjoy yeah. the beach. Go to the, um, to the village and the mountains. <laughs> it sounds like wonderful, that. doesn't it, Ronald? Thanks for your call, yeah. Ronald. Good luck. Parry yeah, thanks up, so much. Δεν μπορώ να ακούω, να μου λένε οι άλλοι Πως έχω για σένα, αγνία μεγάλη Αν θα κάνεις κάτι, ασχημώσαι There's more with Anastasia and David and your calls to 877-333-7425 as we set course in a minute for more of the Greek Isles. We'll also take five for a look at the coffee cultures in Europe and examine how European press and broadcasters operate differently from their American counterparts. It's Travel with Rick Steves.
A pair of broadcasters from Belfast and Berlin examine what the news media offer in their countries and contrast it with what you get elsewhere. That's coming up in just a bit on Travel with Rick Steves. Right now, we're exploring our options for selecting which of the many, many Greek islands you'd like to visit. Our travel specialists for Greece are Anastasia Gaitanou and David Willett. So far, we've looked at Naxos, Paros, Lesbos, Crete, and Rhodes. Where are you thinking of going? Our number is 877-333-7425. Valerie's checking in with us from Kildare, Illinois. Hi, Valerie. Hi. Well, I wanted to uh, jump on the Naxos bandwagon if I could. I was going there just for a couple days on my way somewhere else, and I decided to stay instead of two days, eight days. Why? It was just so easy. I had been to Santorini before, which, of course, is superlative and beautiful, but challenging to get around. Everywhere, it cost a fair amount of money. It was difficult to get around. I mean... Did you find uh, Naxos less expensive than Santorini? Totally. In fact, when I arrived at the port, I had booked online to a pension, and there was a guy there waiting to pick me up. Yeah. And so I didn't have to, you know, drag stuff around. It wasn't, it was about a 20-minute walk from the main port. It was an easy walk, not so easy with a bag, of course. But every day I would walk in and have lunch or go to the Castro up on the hill. One day I took a day trip to Mykonos and Delos instead of staying there. Easy, easy, like catching a bus. Hmm. Um, Another day I took a day trip to the northern side, and um, I will mispronounce this terribly, I'm sure, Apollonius near the Koros. She got it right. Uh, (laughs) David said you got that pronunciation. You know, one thing that you've mentioned, Valerie, which I think is so uh, insightful, is you've got a real community. This is what David mentioned, a real Mm -hmm. community in Naxos. Or if you go to Santorini, it's all just based on tourism, I think. Uh, I met lovely people there, but there was more frictional cost to get to see the sites. Just every time you wanted to do anything, it was like, (laughs) do I want to stand in line to get this bus? You're talking about Santorini. Right. In Knoxville, there was a bus to some outlying beaches, and I did this without a car because I'm afraid to rent cars when I'm alone. And so I got to outlying beaches using public transportation with no difficulty. Now, one thing I really enjoyed doing, I once went to a little island called Lipsy off of Samos, and there's almost nothing on Lipsy. I just hired a guy in the main town to drive me to the other side of the island and leave me there, and I arranged for him to come and pick me up later, and I just had an afternoon on the beach, and it was very peaceful, but I didn't have my own car, but I, I asked this guy to drop me there and pick me up. David, is that still a way for travelers to, to get somewhere, or, or is that a common sort of thing on an island that doesn't have a lot of bus service? It's an easy way to go around things. Yes, if you're not willing to hire a, a motorbike or a car, yes, that's easily easily done. Locals are adept at coming back at an, at an appointed time. And uh, they're, well, they're well used to the needs of tourists, and yeah. Everywhere you find people speak excellent English, so communication on the islands is never a problem. You don't need to be able to speak Greek. Nice. Valerie, does that give you some ideas then? Certainly. Okay. Thank you very okay. much. Okay. Bye-bye. Debbie's on the phone in Wyckoff, New Jersey. Debbie, thanks for calling about Greece. What's on your mind? Hey, Rick. Um, it's just coincidental. I just booked a cruise from leaving from Venice, and we did want to just experience some of the uh, Greek islands, figuring a good way to do it by cruise. So we're going to Corfu, and then we, of course, Mykonos and Santorini. My question basically was, I don't really know much about Santorini or Mykonos. Those are my two um, major islands that I really wanted to try to, you know, get into. I noticed that they have the excursions from the cruise ship, and I don't know, besides being so crazy expensive, they, they don't really, I just like to walk and kind of explore it on my own. Your opinion, I mean, my husband and I, you know, we've been to Europe, and we'll just take a bus and just go, you know, to where we need to go. Do I need to take, would you recommend taking an excursion with them because you only have like five hours? Debbie, I was just in Santorini and Mykonos on a cruise ship, and when you come into Santorini or Mykonos on a cruise ship, you're with thousands of other people. You've got limited time. You want to see all these famous viewpoints. I ended up taking the excursion because that was let me be the first person off the ship, which saved me a lot of time. Oh, okay. And then I also took the excursion knowing I really didn't need it for the information, but I needed it for the efficient transportation connections. And I just thought of it as, it was expensive, but it got me directly to this town, and then they had an hour there, and I did my own thing, and then I got on the bus and went directly to the next town and then did that. And I just used it like a hop-on, hop-off bus, kind of. But certainly, when you go to these places, you could use public transit. I would say for most cruisers, if you got five hours in Santorini, 
the problem is you're there when everybody else is there, and you're going to have a lot of aggressive local people taking advantage of you and taxis and that sort of thing, and you might find it just more relaxing and efficient to take the excursion. In the case of Mykonos, I literally jumped ship in Mykonos, and one of the most beautiful things I've ever experienced was being on Mykonos, inundated with cruisers, and then watching them all go back onto the ship and sail Uh away and then I yes. was all alone on Mykonos. And after 2,000 people leave Mykonos, that wow. island takes on a different personality. Oh, um, <laughs> yes. That's, that's the way to do it. I wish I had. That's why we thought we'd take a little taste of the island and um, decide which we liked better and def- definitely return and yeah. try to live like a local. Well, tour. when you come in with a cruise ship, it makes everything extremely touristy. It's like the locals are laid back and the cruise ship is here and everybody is into high gear to make their money off you. And then the cruise ship's gone and they relax again. And that's the nature of cruising. I, I really enjoyed the cruising, but I'll tell you, uh, it's a different experience to be on these places without the cruise ship. And there are lots of islands that don't have that cruise ship intensity that you can enjoy where I'm sure you would you'd find you'd get a, a more relaxing and better experience. Right. Oh, wow. Well, I will. I, I, I appreciate your um, suggestion. I will um, do with the excursion. I was just torn between it because it was a wine tasting in one of them. I don't recall if it was Santorini or not. I didn't need to go to a wine tasting. Right. I want to walk around the streets, but they all seem to have the same kind of a venue. I they just did. Thought. I, I thought the wine tasting in Santorini was kind of unnecessary, but it came with it. And then, But I wanted to get up to the viewpoints and the different islands, and it, it was a That's to... right. That's where it was. Okay, so you know what, Rick? <laughs> Thank you. I will. I will do the... Because um, it did say it'll take you to the viewpoint where, you know, of course, we're not going to be there for sunset, but of the most beautiful sunset, whether it was on Mykonos or Santorini but um, all different view areas. Hey, I'll tell you one thing. In in Santorini, that's the one place we had a tender where, you know, the little boats take in from the big ship and be the last person on that last tender going back to the ship because it's so delightful to have that last hour on Santorini after everybody else is back on the ship. Oh, yeah. Wow, that's... That's a good tip. All right, Debbie, thanks for your call. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been exploring the Greek Isles with Anastasia Gaitanu and David Willett. And clearly there's a world of travel fun to enjoy in the romantic islands of Greece. We've just scratched the surface. If we can close just by asking David and Anastasia one of your favorite moments. I'll tell you mine. It's on the island of Idra. As the sun goes down, having a glass of ouzo, watching the shipping go by from a little port called Kameni, around the corner from the main town in Idra. Just so peaceful and quiet and especially in the magic hour as the sun's going down, you know you're in the right spot. David, what's a, what's a favorite spot for you to be in the Greek Isles? Uh, look, I'm thinking now one of my funniest moments on the Greek Islands when uh, I took my 16-year-old son, who's a mad keen soccer player, to watch Panaxiakos, one of the main soccer teams on Naxos that plays in a Greek league, playing a team from, uh, from the mainland. And the referee gave a yellow card to one of the local players, whereupon... The local coach ran out onto the field with a cigarette hanging from his mouth, chasing the ref, throwing punches. <laughs> the, ref, the crowd was all throwing their water bottles at the ref, and at the end of the game, my son and I were the only ones with water bottles. A soccer game a on the island of Naxos. Now, there's a surprise. I didn't expect that, but that sounds like a lifelong memory. Anastasia. One of my favorite places also on Naxos, it's um, an old tower house that has been renovated and it's Tinigalanavos, uh, that's how it's the place is called, and it's run by a wonderful family and usually we meet with friends there, uh, most of them surfers and cute looking boys, have to tell you, but anyway, and they have a beautiful terrace and usually we go there when it's full moon, Waro and sunset and they have this amazing wine labeled the yellow donkey, right? <laughs> And uh, just sitting there with friends, uh, looking at the sunset. And I believe, according to my humble opinion, that Naxos has a far more beautiful sunset than Sandorini. But All anyway, right. looking at the sunset, drinking yellow donkey, you know, among your <laughs> friends. Is yellow just, donkey with the sunset. And I, I think it's clear there are beautiful sunsets. Mm. All Being on the Greek crowds tunes you in to the wonderful, glorious finale of every day as the sun's going down. You can almost understand why those ancient Greeks thought so much of the sun god. Oh, yeah. Good old Helios. Helios. Yes. All right. David Willett, Anastasia Gaitanu, thank you so much for sharing an insight into the Greek Isles. Thank you, Rick. (laughs) Thank you. So how many Starbucks are there in Italy? And why should you never order a cappuccino after lunch? 
I'm joined now by Gene Openshaw. Gene's the co-author of several of the Rick Steves guidebooks. We're taking just a few minutes to savor European-style coffee culture and to see how Europeans can turn a visit to a simple cafe into an event to be savored. You could argue that the recent sophistication of coffee culture here in North America can trace its origins to the elegant cafes that have long graced the great cities of Europe. What do you think, Gene? Some say it all began at a single place and a single time. Let me take you to Vienna, the year 1683. In Vienna, like on the Ringstrasse, that big wide boulevard that circles the Lined with the all city. the important buildings. Yeah, important sort of like buildings, center of Vienna. trees, Vienna. trams running around it. But back then, that street was the city wall. And in 1683, the wall was surrounded by the Ottoman Turks. They wow. were laying siege to the city. But then, just as the city was about to fall, da, 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 the cavalry arrives. So the Habsburgs are coming in with reinforcements. Vienna, the capital of the Habsburg Empire, is besieged. And the city was saved. Wow. The Turks ran off. And in their haste to leave, they left behind bags with a mysterious <laughs> substance. Coffee beans. Coffee beans. At least that's what the legend right. says. But shortly thereafter, coffee, which had been popular in Asia, entered Europe and the first coffee houses opened. Vienna is famous to this day for its coffee houses, and it has nothing to do with some war with Turks. It's, it's all about good living. Vienna's coffee houses, you can go in there, they got like velvet couches. And, <laughs> and now, enjoying all of this coffee, you need a little bit of uh, vocabulary. You need to know how to step in and, and take advantage of this ambience. Everywhere, Vienna, Paris, Venice, Rome, you need to know how to enjoy the coffee scene in Europe. For me, coffee culture is two things. It's the, it's the coffee house... Mm-hmm. And it's the coffee itself. So if you know the lingo, you can get the best coffee. What's your favorite lingo when you're traveling in, in Italy or, or France? Um, well, you can use pretty much the same ones that people know here, the Italian names. If you, you go mm-hmm. almost anywhere and order a cappuccino, and that's what right. you get is a cappuccino. You know, usually it's some combination of coffee and milk. Now, we're talking about milk is bad after lunch, right? So you have to, you're going to go a little bit against... People are going to be ridiculing you in some highfalutin corners if you order coffee with milk after lunch, or is, is that no longer the case? Um, it's, it still does exist. And if you really want to look like a local, you might order just a little milk, a macchiato, You know, that's what I do. I find I, I just feel like I'm putting up with less ridicule, because I, I always get my grande latte, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> when I go to Italy, I don't want to, uh, because Italians think if you, if you put milk in your stomach on top of tomatoes, like the tomato sauce in your pasta at lunch, it's all messing everything up. So I'll, uh, I'll, I'll go with that. But I want a little milk. So my favorite word in Italy is uh, macchiato. That's the classic case. Macchiato. So that would be uh, an espresso with just a little milk. It's with just a little milk. Okay. But you'll have different names in different places. You know, everyone knows a cafe au lait from France. Right. Also called a cafe creme. Mm-hmm. Or if you're in Spain, a cafe con leche. If but a lot of Americans just go into a place and they order a latte, because that's what you hear. If you order a latte... In Italy, the word latte means... Milk. And that's what you'll <laughs> maybe get, a nice, tall, cool glass of milk. And I've been in bars in Spain where they do, a, a very common drink is hot milk, and, and you just order leche, and that's what you're going to get. But not afternoon. <laughs> not afternoon, that's right. One of the most interesting drinks, I like a cafe corretto. What is that? It's espresso, corrected, or mm-hmm. spiked, with a little bit of brandy. Really? Okay, so we, we have our different vocabulary, but you also have these historic cafes, and to me... Frankly, I don't see a lot of difference in the coffee from America and Europe, but what I really see differences is the ambience created by the cafe and these venerable places. You've got your velvet couches, you've got your newspapers, you've got your classic people sitting around like they own the place with their handlebar mustaches. And, you know, it's just... <laughs> Waiters dressed up in tuxes. Oh, I love it. What are some classic cafes that come to mind for you, Gene? In Paris, there's Le Procope. That's where Voltaire, Rousseau, Napoleon, they all had mm. their coffee. In Lisbon, the Abrasilera. Yeah, and in both these places, you step in and you feel like 100 years ago, this is where the intellectuals would hang out and and the artists, you know, and the philosophers and the the troublemakers. I just love what coffee does to patriotism and visions of freedom. Caffeine creates all kinds of (laughs) visions, delusions of grandeur. Now, if you're going to just think of a favorite coffee experience in Europe, what's your favorite coffee experience? Um, My favorite, I would go to Rome. You're at the Pantheon. You're facing the Pantheon, you hang a right, oh, I know where you're going. you go, you wind down a few little lanes, and you find a tiny little place. It's called Sant'Eustachio. It's 
been there for decades, maybe a century, St. Eustace. And it's not the kind of place that we, you know, with that wood paneling and everything. You don't don't dress up there. You don't dress up there. But that's where the locals go. They stand uh, shoulder to shoulder and they get their nice shot of coffee while they uh, socialize with their neighbors. Venerable. Venerable is the word I think there. These are local people that know where a good, quality, reliable cup of coffee is. And it's got that history that adds to the mix nicely. My favorite coffee shop experience, I think, is in Helsinki. There's a cafe there. It's like a gazebo. It's a sort of a Art Nouveau iron and glass kind of thing in a park right off the harbor, Cafe Capelli. And in the 19th century, intellectuals were there and artists. And during the Soviet, uh, when the times when Russians were there, before Soviet times, but when Russians were there, Russian military uh, big shots were there. And today, I sit there and enjoy my cup of coffee, and I just feel the struggles that Finnish people have had to maintain and defend their freedom. And I celebrate the cruise ships taking the tourist mobs away, and I'm just there with my nice coffee, surrounded by Finnish culture in Café Capelli, as thoughtful people have been for 150 years. Just a few euros that can buy you a cup of coffee can buy you a great deal of elegance and ambiance and a sense of participating in the local culture. We're talking European coffee here with Gene Openshaw. And Gene, what do Europeans think about the Starbucks invasion? Because that's not quite what you just mentioned there. <laughs> Plastic cup, paper cup, flavored coffees. <laughs> Drinking while you're on the go, just that whole concept. It's against um, the whole cafe culture of Europe, isn't it? It is. And 20 years ago, it really was just when they opened in Vienna, the very home of coffee, yeah. and they opened a Starbucks. How can they? Oh, it was just... Well, they just... put it right across from Sascher, Cafe Cafe Sascher, yeah. yeah. Which was the most venerable, and it's where all the opera singers would go for their coffee. Yeah. And then you got Starbucks across yeah. the street, and you can have a Frappuccino. Yeah. And so maybe, you know, 10 years ago or so, that was a terrible thing. But these days, you know, globalization's taken hold. Europe is embracing this international efficiency, fast-moving, grab a coffee to go a little bit, but they're not the big gulp culture yet, that's for sure. Back to our original question, Gene. How many Starbucks are there in Italy? Zero. Zero. Uh, There are dozens in France, in Spain, in Germany, and they're very popular, and people, locals use them. Italy, they just haven't uh, been able to make that beachhead. And if you can find a Starbucks, you have no trouble getting milk in your coffee after lunch. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's true. You know, that whole thing, it's, I mean, there are coffee snobs, especially in Italy, that just says, no, you shouldn't have any milky right. drink uh, after breakfast. But times are changing. Nobody's and they're not going to lock you up. And I never hesitate to order my, my grande latte in the late afternoon. And I might even add some flavor. And I might even oh. have it in a paper cup and drink it on my way to the next museum. Yeah, <laughs> Mr. Steves, you are a barbarian. And loving it. <laughs> <laughs> It's always good to remember that a little art, a little history, and a little appreciation of the coffee culture can add a whole new dimension to your travels. Gene, thanks a lot. Thank you. There are some interesting differences in the media cultures of Europeans and Americans. We'll check in with friends who work for the major public broadcasters in Germany and the UK next. They'll share with us their expectations for what they and their audience get from the media in their countries and how this contrasts with what they observe over here. You're listening to Travel with Rick Steves. The views we have of the rest of the world are often shaped by impressions we get from what we watch on TV or what we read in the paper or, perhaps like now, what you hear on the radio. What you see on TV can suggest that the world is a dangerous place and you should just stay home. Or it can inspire you to explore more of the world on your own. We're joined now by two European media professionals to help assess how local media can impact the way people in different countries might view the world. Susie Miller files news reports for BBC Ulster in Belfast. And Holger Zimmer works for the independent regional public broadcasting organization in Berlin. Holger and Susie, it's clear to me that media really has a huge impact on how Americans see the rest of the world. How, how do you see media impacting the way people in Britain or in Germany see the rest of the world? And what are challenges for you as journalists, Holger? Yeah, maybe just a, a good example would be now the debate we have about the euro as a currency, the European Union, where we're going to go with it. And basically, like, you know, in the last kind of months and, and years even, we have seen kind of a resurgence of media telling stories kind of very much in a nationalistic way. Like, for example, you'd have, in Germany, you'd have media telling us about, like, oh, the bad Greek person, you know, and how they're wasting our money. And 
in Greece, you would have someone else basically telling like how bad the Germans are and now kind of back to the kind of Second Reich days. And that's kind of something I find very disturbing and very discomforting. So I think when it comes to a European perspective, we really have to remind ourselves that, you know, the European Union does have a lot to offer. And we have to kind of really try to find what are the ways that really actually connect us. And that's something that media really has to be really careful about. So media has such power and it can be abused and it can make something that is not perfect, but generally positive, actually easy to tear apart and demonized. Demonize it when you, when you really go along nationalistic stereotypes. This nationalism in media, what power is that? Is that because wealthy uh, organizations or people own the media, or is it because media is commercial, it has to be sensational, and that'll sell more ads? Well, in general, because like it's so much easier to tell a simplistic story right. than to tell a story behind a story, really. And I think that's what we're facing pretty much these days. When it comes to Europe, let's be clear about what is going on and not point the finger. Things are complicated, and, and you mentioned uh, it's hard to tell the whole story. Do you find that the attention span for a journalist, uh, you're dealing with people with a shorter attention span or a longer attention span as the years go by? I think that kind of varies. It probably is that people tend to read kind of more like, you know, just a, the short paragraph rather than the, the big story. But in general, I think people really do want good information and in-depth information, not just like the big headlines. Okay, so that's that's encouraging from a point of view of how can the German public understand these complicated issues. Yeah. Susie, in Britain uh, with the BBC and so on, is there pressure to make things shorter and more snappy because people have less attention spans and, and they need to have that variety? Or is there a patience and an interest in really getting to the depth of things? I feel that that still is the case, that there's a patience there, that, that people are prepared to sit down at 6 o'clock or 10 o'clock at night and watch a good half hour of news. And the breadth of that news can take you all over the world. It's not just mm -hmm. uh, UK, it, it's all over the world. Okay, yeah, maybe in the commercial sector there is what they would call a dumbing down, that it's more snappy, more sound bites. Mm -hmm. But overall, and thinking about newspapers as well, I think that people are still very keen to be informed and to be properly informed. Is that partially because you live in a BBC public broadcasting sort of world and that's what, what you believe in? Or, or is that, would you say, a fair assessment that Britain still does have uh, an appetite for longer coverage? I think that that's Britain-wide. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, people will pick up a, a morning newspaper or, or look at a, a newspaper online as a matter of habit. And then throughout the day, they'll be, you know, they'll have the car radio on and they'll, they'll always be looking for what's happening, what's the latest, what's going okay, on, what's so David Cameron know what's said. Happening. Yeah. Now, in my, my experience here in the United States is that news recently has become more entertainment than news. And it has to be more hysterical and everything is a crisis and a war because that sells more ads. And if you have a commercial environment, you've got to make it exciting because more people listen and then you can charge more for the ads. And to me, that makes media kind of a, a threat to a better understanding, and media is supposed to teach a better understanding. Holger, do you feel this dynamic at all in Germany? Well, the dynamic might be there in the commercial sector, but in general, I think we still we, we agree on that, uh, Susie. I think that mm -hmm. there still is a good line drawn between what is news and presented as news, hard facts, uh, opinion, and then the other sector might be entertainment. That's another part of the story, but not really. If I go and, and you know turn on the Tagesschau, which is like the daily 8 o'clock, news TV that like basically every every German watches. It's not entertainment, day. it's news. That is news and this is what you're going to get and there is no no really crossing that line as yet and I'm really happy about that. The only crossover I guess would be maybe news about the royal family. Some people don't think that's news at all but you know people are interested and that's what happens. It and certainly it, sells newspapers. It, it really does and that whole idea of celebrity culture and what people are up to in the public eye, you know that there are lines to be crossed there but in the main I think that uh, British media really sets the standard on here's what's happening uh, without saying, look, this is the right or wrong way of it, just clearly setting out the facts. Now, when I go to England, I'm noticing there's newspapers and there's newspapers. There's, there's very two clearly different kinds of newspapers. Can you explain that? Yeah, you have the tabloids, uh, which are, are the smaller newspapers, and the best-selling newspaper in the UK is The Sun, which is a, a fairly, you know, low-brow paper, but, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's fine. And it goes right the way through to the Financial Times, pretty much. And it's up to you what paper you grab, uh, whatever gives you your news in, in whatever format you want. But, uh, you know, it's so interesting that a lot of them will have the same features or the same headlines on their front page, just told in a completely different way. Designed for a different market segment. Exactly, yes. Uh -huh. Somebody who wants a buxom, topless woman on page two and somebody who doesn't. <laughs> 
Well, actually, that's a subject for a debate. That uh, the buxom lady that you talked about—they're trying to get rid of that, just in the, the, the spirit of of moving onwards. But you know, it sells a lot of papers. It's, it's kind of—it's amazingly trashy to me, but it's entertainment for a lot of your market. Every construction worker's white van will have one of those in their front windscreen. Holger, is the same sort of thing in print media in Germany? Well, that also there is like tabloids and there is kind of like more, let's say, serious kind of papers. But what really kind of strikes me when talking about Europe and maybe America that we have to really consider that Europe, like we all kind of next to each other. Like mm-hmm. Germany, for example, is right in the middle of things. And like we have like so many neighbors. There's France and there's Denmark in the north and there's all these uh, countries in the south, Switzerland, Austria, whatever, small or big, like in Poland to the east, for example. So... For us, news about foreign countries, Auslandsberichterstattung, as we call it, like be informed about what's going on in other countries is very, very vital and important, not just because we think like, hey, let's have a look what they're doing, but it is like really important to economy, social, political issues. And that is a broad segment, actually, that we're going to get. So I'm really happy that we still have this broad coverage, be it in public broadcasting or in newspapers, like two or three pages full-time happenings all over the world, basically, and that's important to us. I think that is a fundamental difference in media between Europe and the United States. We're interested what's going on in Poland if it impacts us, or what's going on in Norway or Ireland or Spain or Mexico. But if it just is within that country, nobody will read it here, and then there's a disincentive for anybody to talk about it. But you're saying in Europe... If it's happening in Poland yes. and if it's important to the Poles, we're it's concerned to about the elections. We're concerned about like what's the kind of economy doing, what's the income wise, what's the topics they talk about. And I think there's one thing like, of course, media also in Europe run along national lines. Yes, I have French papers who write in French. I have German papers and stuff. So that's people, of course, they go first to that media. Holger Zimmer from Berlin and Susie Miller from Belfast are broadcasters in their own home cities. They're our guests right now on Travel with Rick Steves as we examine what people expect from local media in Europe. Susie, we were just talking in Germany how there's a more genuine interest in what's going on in the other neighboring countries, and in part because Germany is embedded in that. Mm -hmm. You know, the United States is separated by a whole ocean from that, and Britain is separated by the English Channel from that. Yes. Do you find you're somewhere between Germany and America that way, or are you just as enthusiastic about knowing what's important to Spanish people, even if it doesn't impact directly British people? I think it extends beyond the European borders, really. You know, Britain right, having sure. having this empire from way back, <laughs> which is all gone now, obviously. Yeah. But, yeah, they're interested in what's happening in Africa. They're interested in what's happening in Australia and Asian countries. And obviously, you know, being one of the G8, yeah. uh, there's an interest in, in the big powers there. I find that a German normal guy on the street would be more inclined to have that aggressive approach to what's going on in the rest of the world yeah. more than a Brit Definitely. And, and much more than an American. Definitely, I think, yes. So. Uh-huh. You know, I, I think it's it's just to, to do with our splendid isolation policy, yeah. maybe, or, um, you know, but, we were yeah. interested when, when the, the borders were coming down and, and you know, oh, free yeah. movement within Europe. Uh, one paper in particular in the UK was very keen to scaremonger about all these people who would be arriving in from Romania and Bulgaria and taking all the oh, jobs. So that would be bringing in a little bit of scaremongering oh, and yeah. you're competing with what's going on with Prince William. Yes, exactly. Yes, so you have the, the full gamut there. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Holger Zimmer and Susie Miller about media, media in Europe and media in America. Holger and Susie, you're traveling in the United States now and you're a professional journalist in Germany and in Britain. What's your take on media in America as you travel around? Uh, because you would have an insight into it as your your professionals in that. My first comment would be, where is the international news? You know, you turn on a TV news bulletin and, and it's all America, America, America. Absolutely. There's a lot happening in the rest of the world. And, you know, maybe it might be an idea that people knew about it. It's the same in, in papers. You know, you have your metro section and your U.S. section and then what? Nothing else. We're, a, four, we're 4% of the planet, but uh, <laughs> that's, is there a little bit more? Yeah. Yeah, you know, look beyond the shores a little. But that's driven by what our consuming audience finds interesting, I think. Are you saying in Britain that people are interested in more things outside of Britain? I, I, yeah. I would disagree because, like, in general, people are interested in what is going on. It's just a matter of, like... Do, do you present it to them or do you just say, listen, mm. you can be content with like the local sex and crime scene and the murder around the corner in your backyard? If that's what it is, then that's what you're getting. But I think in general, people want to know, people okay. like to find out what is going on, not just kind of like here in whatever Saratoga or Oklahoma, but really like, let's say, I mean, Europe is not just a small little thing. It's right there. 
there is, of course, even like in, in Germany, in Europe, an imbalance about like what do we actually know about Asia? What do we really know about Africa? Mm -hmm. Yes, we are kind of Eurocentric in that way. So I mm -hmm. can understand the perspective. America is such a big country. And yes, you want to firstly know what's going on right here. But uh, care to venture around, you know, beyond these shores and you're really going to be rewarded. So I'm, I'm here with Susie that I think there could be a little more, you know, a little one or two pages more of really international news. And you know what's going on. Now, there's something also that I noticed about a trend in American media lately and commercial media is media is catering to liberal people or conservative people. It's just if you want to be viable and sell advertisements and pay for your, your crew, you got to have a big audience. And what works is media that makes liberals happy and media that makes conservative people happy. Mm -hmm. uh, do you notice that from your perspective, Holger, in, in Germany? Mm, yes and no. It's really much broader for us. Yes, of course, you have a newspaper in Germany that is more conservative and everyone knows it, maybe buys it because of that. And we have other papers or stations that are more, let's say, liberal or maybe left-wing. But in general, I think even in a special section of the media, you'd find much broader views. Like I pick up the FAZ, uh, Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, which has the air of being a kind of like a, the newspaper of the conservative right wing sort of thing. And I think like interesting, like it really is not just one color there. You get many different colors. And I think that is different and that's quite viable and quite healthy that way. Susie, how about in Britain? Yeah, same sort of thing. You know, you pick your paper depending on, on what you want to, uh, how you want to read it. Uh, the Guardian, the Independent, very progressive, and people know that. Those lines are very, very clear. If you're a bit more conservative, it seems to be once you reach the age of about 60, you switch to the Daily Mail or the Daily Telegraph, which is just going to have a very straight down the line government spin on things. Not going to ruffle your feathers or get exactly. you out of your comfort zone. That, that doesn't mean to say they won't investigate stuff. Sure, they mm. will. But uh, their overall tone will, will be nice and uh, mild, let's say. Holger and Susie, you both work in public broadcasting, and I work in public broadcasting. You know, our show is primarily a public radio show, and I spend a lot of time in pledge drives. Do you know what a pledge drive is? I yeah. just basically heard about it. We don't really deal in that so much because we're basically licensed, financed through license fees. And that's something that I'm really happy about. Really, that is something that is very important. And I think the majority of the people understand it and like it because they know what, like the small amount of money, maybe it's like 20 euros a month or something, they will get, it's less than that actually, they will get high quality broadcasting with like a broad perspective. You got plenty of commercial oh, yes. media. You got any kind of media you want. But one place on the dial is publicly funded and you don't have pledge drives. Yes. Wow. And Susie, what's the situation for BBC? Same thing with the BBC. You pay a license fee. It's about £200 a year. And that guarantees you they now have four channels four on BBC. Channels. And radio are, too? And radio, yes. So if, if, you take a, if you take a TV home and plug it in, you've got that. If you want to not have any media, you don't pay it? Or does everybody pay it whether they like it or for not? For us, we just change in Germany. So now every single household has to pay. It's not person per person anymore. Oh, really? But a household, regardless of what they have, regardless whether they have a computer or not. So... So Some people dispute it, but in general, really, the majority says, yeah, that's okay. I mean, we're in it, and we know what we're getting. Really, as, as Susie said, it's not just kind of one channel or one radio. Like in Berlin alone, we have about five or six different radio waves publicly funded. We have uh, a TV, and then, of course, the nationwide TV. There's two more national kind of really news and culture channels that are there and publicly funded. And I think that is really, that is a merit. That is something we should cherish. You both work for public broadcasting in both of your countries. You've never had to do a pledge drive. No. And in your country, generally people, it's just you pay taxes and your country's going to offer a lot of things. It's going to offer infrastructure on the roads. It's going to offer education. It's going to offer military defense. And healthcare. it's going to offer healthcare and public media. Now, my thinking when I'm in Germany is you have had quite a lot of hard lessons in the last hundred years and you need to have a smart electorate. And I've got this sense that the government of Germany wants its electorate, the people who vote, to not be dumbed down but to be smarted up. And I've noticed that the German government actually works to have smarter citizens. Is that just uh, my imagination? Or in Germany, do you sense that the government is interested in investing in the savviness of the public politically? <laughs> yeah, it's nicely put, investing in the savviness of the public. I think in general we have this this idea that like, good, high quality and very much in-depth information is vital to a democracy. Like, and I think that's not just, you know, Germany. Like, it's not just, wow, we, we've got to learn a lesson. You know, maybe it mm -hmm. is. Susie, I have just enjoyed watching two marvelous and very expensive productions. One was called Planet Earth 
and the other is called Rome. Yeah. And uh, Planet Earth was paid for by BBC, I believe, and Rome yes. was a partnership with HBO and BBC. And looking at those productions, I thought, how could anybody produce this? It's so gorgeous and so expensive, and thank goodness the British people paid the taxes so I could watch this thing. I mean, it was, it was a great thing. Do you have a sense of that in Britain, that the BBC is sort of um, providing a service that way? We do. We're very lucky. And I think people do appreciate uh, the production values within uh, the BBC. But bear in mind, you know, that that is uh, something which is going to come back for them because they can sell those programs. The fact that you were able to watch I, them. I paid good money for exactly. it and I've got it proudly on my bookshelf and I'm sure BBC owns the rights to that. Yes. Uh-huh. So that they have a commercial arm, even though they're, they're public broadcasting, they're making such beautiful programs that they can sell them around the world. And the other issue about it is that uh, the license fee used to be raised when you went into a store and bought a TV. You were automatically then signing up for the license. How many people now don't watch TV on a TV? They're watching it on their iPads, they're watching it on their desktops. So there needs to be a new way sorted out so that people aren't getting that system for free. Yeah, that's why Germany has changed basically to really like every household got to pay, regardless whether they own anything. That was driven by this whole digital media revolution. Yes. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about media, public, commercial, European, and American. And we've been joined by Susie Miller, who works for the BBC in Belfast, and Holger Zimmer, who works for the German Public Broadcasting Network in Berlin. Susie and Holger, thank you so much. Thank you. Vielen Dank. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tappen with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan Wolner at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to Aaron Harding for helping us out this week. Rick has also recorded walking tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. Look in the left-hand margin of the page in the radio section of ricksteves.com for a link to Rick's audio tour app. Join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Turkey, Greece, and beyond, one small group at a time. This year, we're featuring tours of Athens and the heart of Greece, Istanbul, the best of Turkey, and Village Turkey. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.